Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, friends. Welcome hey. to another episode of Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm here today with Kyla Graham, CEO and founder of Synergy Accounting. Welcome, Kyla. Hey, Rhea. How are you? I am great. And I am excited to talk to you about all of the financial things. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your career. And fun fact for the audience, you're also a trapeze artist. Tell me about that. (laughs) Yes. So I am a certified public accountant and I started off in the audit world. So as part of the requirements for the company I worked with, we had to, of course, get our pass our CPA exam. And I told my friends, I was like, when I pass, I want to go on vacation. And at the resort, they had a trapeze rig. So my roommate and I looked at each other, we're like, want to do it? Did it. And I was like, yes, I'm hooked. <laughs> eventually, though, of course, clearly, I've seen a few accounting now. So I eventually left that job, did a couple of others, and realized I love the idea of, one, working for myself, but also helping nonprofits figure out why did the numbers even matter? So like, why were the auditors coming? What's the point of that? Why do the financial statements need to make sense? Why do we have to put them out there? And so that was part of why I was just like, okay, starting Synergy. We're going to like tell people things. I'm like, I'll be bossy. I'll tell you what to do. And you know, do it or not. By the way, we're not allowed to say bossy anymore. We say executive leadership skills, just so you know. I have great executive leadership. Me too. (laughs) Also, don't try to tell me what to do. (laughs) Okay, but you know what I found so interesting when we first connected is I often feel like in a nonprofit, you have like lots of diversity on the program side. And then when it comes to development and finance, it tends to be very white. And so for yourself as a black woman, I'm just curious, like, do you find that? Like, how have you dealt with being like the only in many situations? Yes. (laughs) It's been interesting to be the only black woman. I feel like I've integrated at least two offices that I've worked in. I'm like, we don't have any black people. Welcome aboard. Here I am. Here to diversify. Spice things up. (laughs) It's always been very interesting because at the beginning of my career, it was very much, oh, she's like brand new. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And I've definitely had people who are like, let me talk to your boss. Talk to my boss. And my boss will just go come back and be like, yes, she's right. Um, oh, literally people have been like, I need you to talk to your manager. You've been yeah, Karen. I, I have I, people. And I'm like, you would like me to schedule a call with this person. Yeah, cool. No problems. <laughs> I'm not afraid of you. What are you going to tell me? And so I feel like for me, it's really made me be, have to be assertive. And I come, like, I feel like most people of color come knowing like, oh, if I come to you with a response, No, it's because I fact-checked myself seven times. I've talked this through with someone else. I'm not going to come with you with some like, I'm not sure. I will sound like I'm not sure because that's the game we play. So I've definitely been like, oh, could you explain this to me? I'm not sure I understand. Maybe I'm just missing it. Oh, all the things you said are wrong? Cool. So yeah, thanks for the explanation. This is actually what you should have been doing. And so that's been the fun part of being like, let me play like I have no idea what you mean. Oh yeah, I I call it the dumb blonde. Yeah, like, oh, could you explain this to me again? Hmm, I've got another question. I do that all the time. And just so that people could like hear themselves out loud. I'm like, are you sure? This is cool. Okay. And so I feel like that helped me build up some of the confidence about going out on my own. And when I went from like the auditor to being the director of finance at a nonprofit where almost everyone... (laughs) 
the leadership team was why just being knowing going in like oh I'm going to have to placate you and make you feel like this is great until you get comfortable enough. I feel like it's the game we play, unfortunately. But also, because I trust myself and know that I've done the work, which I feel like sometimes we downplay our skills and like, no, don't downplay it. Because you put in all this effort. Yep. All this time, they want to downplay it. Cool. We'll play this game. We got two 10-minute meetings where you can do this before I'm going to come up and be like, so I wrote out that my directions for you. Great. Follow this. <laughs> so let me talk about this because when you and I first connected, you talked about being passionate about teaching specifically leaders of color. And I think we even talked about women of color leaders being comfortable with the finances. And so I think let's unpack that a little bit because I feel like people have baggage about money. I think women in particular have baggage about money. And then when you like dig down, you're like women of color further baggage about money. So tell me about your observations and why it is that women of color leaders, not all the time, but in many cases are not comfortable with the finances. The comfort level with the finances, it's definitely a muscle. And I think for most women of color, most black women, the idea of having to open yourself up to that vulnerability feels harsh. Like, oh, I've been operating this on a shoestring budget. How dare someone come in and tell me that I'm doing this wrong or come in and say, hey, can you tell me why you did this? And because we're constantly being second guessed, like I said, people are constantly like, are you sure you know what you're doing? We get nervous about having those money conversations because we think there's, it's always someone is trying to prove us wrong. And that's what I especially saw with like the auditor role. People thought like Kyla's coming here to tell us all the things we did wrong. And I was like, honestly, no, I'd actually like to tell you some of the things you could do better and why the way you're doing it. Yes, it's getting the job done, but maybe it's inefficient. And so I feel like that is the barrier. We're afraid that, okay, these people are just going to tell me that I don't deserve the money I'm getting. I'm doing everything wrong. I'm going to jail in a week. Oh, and that's so interesting. So it's like it's, all of the internal self-talk that you're Yeah, it's like you're yourself. doing all of that. And I'm just like, yeah. honestly, you paid them to do a service? Get your money's worth. Like, ask all the questions and be like, so how should I do this? You don't have an answer? Well, then you can't tell me anything. If they don't have another solution, that's yeah. not. It's interesting as you're talking because I'm reflecting back. And I do remember that in board meetings, the times that I was most mansplained were about the finances. So I always had like corporate guys on my board who were talk at me like I didn't know what I was doing. And then and I'm like, well, maybe I don't because they're like in private equity and hedge funds and like they know more about finances than I do, right? Yeah. So there is like that level of insecurity about what I know. But then I was like, but wait, actually nonprofit <laughs> finance is different than your little yep. hedge fund here. Also, we're not fleecing people. So there is that. Yeah. And I feel like part of that is really understanding your mission because- I feel like if you can, with every financial decision, if you know the mission reason behind it, you can justify everything. You can say like, well, I understand this is why we did it. This is my reasoning. And this is all mission connected. It makes a stronger case than just like, well, I wasn't sure. Like, nope, don't think about I wasn't sure. Just think about how was this connected to the program that we're running, what we're trying to do. <laughs> okay, girl, let's get into that because this is like my pet peeve, which is like, this is how budgeting usually goes in a nonprofit. You look at the budget from the last year, you look at what you spent, and then you basically just like incrementally increase the budget lines by three to 5%. And then you present it to the board. And I'm 
curious how you would recommend doing it differently because the name of this webinar is your budget equals your values. So I'm curious, what is a better way to do budgeting? So a better way to do budgeting, in my opinion, is to start before the December meeting. So personally, I am a big fan of all throughout the year, you program leaders, the regular part of like the management admin side is just taking notes about, oh, I'd love to do this training, but we don't have the money. Like just jotting down all those things throughout the year. And then in October, everyone's saying like, hey, what were all your great ideas that you had during the year, but we just, you didn't think you could do it because of the money. And have them put that all on paper. Say, this was the conference that we wanted to go. This is why we would have done it. This is the thing it would have helped the programs I do. These are the materials that we wanted to buy. This is why, how it would help. Maybe if it's the kids, the kids that we serve. These are all the things. And just putting it together more as a wish list. But not just like a random wish list, but a wish list with, this is the result that we're hoping that it'll have. This is how it'll help the organization grow. Because then when leadership is having the conversations and they're ready to be like, no one gets any money, you can actually say like, well, actually, remember you said that you wanted 50 more participants? I cannot get 50 more participants if we don't include <laughs> increasing this budget. And that's why the having an arbitrary 3% across the board isn't helpful because it doesn't take into account things like that. What if 50% is more like a doubling of your program? And we need to make that more of a 50% increase. Yeah, well, I think what you're alluding to is the fact that I think a lot of nonprofits have a hard time quantifying their outcomes, right? Because if you uh -huh. could really understand, like, this amount of money would equal, like, this percentage more of, like, whatever outcome, like, yeah. more kids serve, more higher test scores, et cetera, et cetera then it would be easy to understand like what levers you could pull on the budget side to get the outcomes that you wanted. Mm -hmm. But I think it's hard if you're not, I mean, thinking a for-profit business, it's very clear, like you're selling widgets, like if, I, if this, <laughs> then this, right? How do you reconcile that in a social sector setting where you're dealing with people or outcomes that may be longer term the next fiscal year? Yeah, so I think of it more of an immediate, that like, okay, we want to make sure 75 kids don't go hungry. Like, yes, but what does that mean in a more tangible way? This year we served 25 kids and it cost us this much. To say like, okay, the evidence of what we've already spent and thinking about, okay, what were the things that we held back on? So I would frequently see program leaders say that, like, oh, I know that it's going to cost me this much, but at the end of the year they didn't spend it. And when I ask, it hasn't been because the need wasn't there. It was because they were nervous about spending the money. And I was just like, but you knew Again, for me, again, it points back to that confidence. Like you knew that you wanted to serve more. You knew that you wanted to do this. So really backtracking and saying like, okay, I didn't spend as much. I only served this many people. Maybe I only gave out seven snacks instead of the 20 that I anticipated. And really thinking about that and saying like, what other things did I notice? Did we have more kids just feeling like, you know what? I don't want to be here because I'm hungry and I'm tired of being around. And so those are the notes that I feel like we should be taking. The notes about like, oh, this week, this week was terrible. <laughs> and these are the things that stood out so that you can reflect and see, is there a pattern that you can track and what, what could be a trigger point? Like we won't know anything until you actually test it. So you won't know that, okay, if we increase the money for food, it will have a direct impact. But if you're not willing to try you'll never get that result. You'll never know for certain. And so you mm -hmm. have to at least put it out there so that someone else can be like, 
okay, I'm willing to take the risk. Because like we said, where your budget is, that's what you value. So if you're saying we value making sure the kids are fed, we are willing to take a risk on putting more money towards that. So let me ask you this, because as an ED, (laughs) I was always very conscious of the money coming in and money going out. And I and I'm not trying to bash people, but I, I no always way. just felt like the program people were very free with the money in a way that made me a little uncomfortable. So I guess I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit about how do you align the interests of the people who sort of oversee the budget and the people who are spending the money? And you know, specifically, I'm thinking about the perverse incentives around like, oh, if I'm a program person and I know I have this amount of money in my budget and I haven't spent it by like near the end of the fiscal year, my incentive is to spend all of it on whatever in order to uh-huh. hold on to my budget, which like I'm all for like spending money on the things that you need to spend money on, but I'm not necessarily about spending money that you don't need to spend just to hold on to your budget line. So I guess my question is, how do you align the incentives and the interests? Yeah. So I am a fan of talking about finances during staff meetings. And the reason to do that is to add that level of transparency and to say upfront to people, these are our priorities and it's your budget isn't promised. Not because we we're going through a, you don't spend, you lose, but we're going through a, is this an area that we really want to focus on? And so again, redirecting them towards mission focus, mission accomplishment and saying, hey, we'd love to be able to fund everyone's budget fully, but maybe some years we need to rotate which program is going to get that boost because our strategic plan says these things. And so we have to figure out a way to realign and not make it feel like, you know? So in my like fictional, the way that I make it easy for myself is like, I say, save our circus. That's our fictional nonprofit. We have a after-school program. We have an adult program. We have like a touring. So if we said like, okay, we really want to get more adults into it, we have to accept that the trade-off will be, maybe we're not doing the traveling circus as much. But that's not a constant because every year you're not necessarily saying we're only focusing on the adults. You would rotate your priorities. And so just like that, you have to figure out where in the budget do we need to rotate some of those costs so that we're not constantly saying like, well, another year we didn't meet those goals because we didn't have any money it wasn't a priority because you never, at some point you have to shift it. Do you advocate zero-based budgeting? I would say yes, to a degree. I am a believer that you should start from the bottom and not just say like, well, we're just basing it off of last year. Like I said, with the ideas of priorities, everyone needs to come with that fresh perspective of what would we do if we could And when people only think of, well, what did we do last year? It stifles the idea of innovation because they're only saying, well, well, this was the way we ran the program. Well, that may not be the best way. (laughs) That may not be the most efficient way. One organization I worked with, I came in and I'm I'm the account, I'm the finance person. So I'm looking at like the financials. I was like, you guys spent a lot of money on paper. What is the deal? And they were like, we don't do typical textbooks. We print off all the materials. And so I had to think about, okay, well, what, that is a kid focus, that is program focus. I can't mess with that. But I looked at the way administration was spending paper-like money, and I was just like, okay, how about administration needs to go paperless? And so because I was new, I don't care how you've been doing it before. I just want to try something new. Let's test it, see if it works. And by doing that, by allowing 
that innovation to be like, you know what, what could it hurt? We can't spend more money. Like it couldn't possibly do that. So giving people that freedom, I think is what really helps with the zero base. So not saying you're starting at zero, but you have to do all the same things. Saying you're starting at zero and you are allowed to figure out what mm. it's going to be. So it's a more it, creative process. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you about boards quickly because the dynamic I've noticed with my board was that you have a finance committee that's very, very in the weeds, perhaps too much in the weeds, and then they approve a budget, they send it to the larger board, and basically the larger board like glazes over. And so I guess I'm wondering, what's the way that you can avoid that? Because there has to be some happy medium here, and and I think a lot of board members especially if they're not coming from finance, are very uncomfortable with the numbers. And so I'm wondering if you have any tips or tools for us to make it accessible to the non-finance person. Yes. So I would say, think about the level of detail that you want to put out. So what I frequently see is that the budget that gets sent out for approval doesn't actually look like what the financial statements would look like. And so there is like a huge disconnect for the board members. They're just like, what is this? I don't know. Does it balance to zero? Cool. Close enough. And so for me, the first step is, okay, how do you make that lineup? So looking at your financial statements and saying, okay, we need to make the budget look like it's the same format. So that's the first one so that at least see a continuity and can tell like, oh, this looks weird because of this other thing. The other thing is because now they are aligned, sending out the budget and saying like, this is what we did last year. Here's the new budget. So now they can see like a comparative view. So maybe they're not still digging into the details, but they, most people can say like, oh, that number is bigger. I have a question about why. And it gives them that ability rather than them looking just at the budget by itself. like. I don't know what this means. Is it good? Is it bad? I have no comparison. Yeah. Um, and the final tip that I have about that is the same as what I would say about the financials being too detailed is coming up with a dashboard format to say, okay, yes, we have that detail because I think the board should still see these are the totals. These are all the numbers, but also having a dashboard that says, okay, these are our top three revenue sources. These are our top three expense drivers and then making it so they can see, okay, this is how we expect it to come in. This is the percentage of our total revenue that's going to come from grants versus from donations. That way they have a bigger, again, the board is thinking big picture. <laughs> they don't necessarily want all those details, but if they can see, okay, this percentage, is this a good percentage? Is is all 50% of our grants, 50% of our funding coming from grants, something we'd like? Yes? Oh, cool. But giving them some of that quick analysis up front makes it more palatable for them. So Kyla, I'm going to jump in because we have a guest who has a question and he has to drop yeah. off soon. So I'm going to go ahead and have him chime in and ask his question, then we'll continue on. So hold on one second here. Adam, you want to ask your question? I do. Hi, it's Adam Rabinovich, a friend and fan of Kyla's, and uh, thanks for this. In April, we got some advice at Cope Foundation, where I'm the executive director, for this year at least, to forget about our budget, that values-driven blueprint for guiding us through a typical year, and focus on our cash and reserves. 
which uh, in our case, we happen to have both. And I just want to get your thoughts on that in terms of money management. Yeah. Hey, Adam, from a money management perspective, I would focus on your cash flow projections. So a cash flow projection is thinking of not just what do we budget for the year, but when did we anticipate that physical cash coming in? And so plotting that through by month, I've been at organizations where we needed to be looking at that on a weekly basis is like, okay, in two weeks we have payroll. What is hitting the bank account? And so by doing that, you don't have to fiddle around with the budget. You can really focus on, okay, what are our immediate pressing needs? And because it's not a budget, it doesn't have to go to the board for any type of approval. You are really just living in real time and saying, okay, we have 65,000 in the bank. We need to be sure to transfer 25 by payroll in order to cover um, costs. It gives you a way to leverage what you may need to reach out to any board or funders to say, hey, I know that your gift, I know it's scheduled to come in in four weeks, but we actually could use that a week earlier. Is there a way that we can adjust that payment? Because when you're looking at the budget, you're just like, oh, everything looks great, but it doesn't tell you when you hit zero. Like, oh, we are going to have negative cash in seven weeks. What is the plan? And by looking at the castle projection, it really helps with that. Rhea, if you're comfortable, there is actually a resource on our website that we're happy to share with. Oh yeah, definitely. Any resources, we'll make sure to post it with the podcast. And actually, I also wanted to get the dashboard that you were talking about for folks to call. Cool. So we will drop that. I love that Adam just said cash is queen. I've always heard cash is king, but you know what? Cash is queen. (laughs) (laughs) Adam, did that answer your question? Yes. Thanks very much, guys. Okay. Thanks, Adam. Nice to hear from you. Okay. I've got one more question for you, Kyla, and then I'm going to open it up to the audience here. But I'm sure you, like I, am approached on a not irregular basis from young folks who are interested in starting their own nonprofits. I have an opinion about that. I'm curious what you think about that. Yes. When people approach me and say, oh, I want to start a nonprofit, I typically, I hook them out. I'll be like, okay, tell me about it. What's your idea? And then I'll ask, have you ever volunteered at an organization that does this? (laughs) And if they say no, I'm immediately like, go volunteer there. If they say yes, but they don't have this program, I'm back to the go volunteer there. I'm like, see if you can run that program for them. Because part of the running a nonprofit is, can you manage all the people involved? And if you can at least try it with a system or try it with existing volunteers, you have a better chance of knowing like, okay, these are the things that would work, wouldn't work. You also get to see some of the back office dealings that they'll have. So you can see like, oh, how do they (laughs) manage the board meeting? And you can decide if it's truly something for you. It's so easy to feel like, oh, well, they're not doing it. I should just go ahead and do it. But sometimes it's better to see, okay, what can I learn from their mistakes so that if I do decide to move forward, I'm ready for it. And if you're lucky enough to get put on their fundraising team, you'll know for certain (laughs) if this is something you want to do. It's so funny. You're so much nicer than I am. I'm always like, no, don't do it because there are too many nonprofits out there. Then my second thing is, so you want to pet the panda bears, but do you really like fundraising and budgeting and managing a board and hiring staff and managing it? No. Then you don't want to run a nonprofit. You want to be a program person and you want to pet panda bears. Because I I think the fundamental thing is people forget that a nonprofit is a business. 
it's a business for social good, but it's still a business. And when you forget that businesses run on money coming in and money going out, then that's a really good way to go out of business. Yes, it is definitely a let's put this all together. Let's figure this out and let's have an actual plan. Yeah. So you can't just decide like in the moment for everything. So if you know that you're not that person, find those people before you start because you will burn out quickly and be frustrated. And yeah. Yeah. Well, before we started the call, you brought up a good point too, which is like, so do you know people who will support you? Do you have donors? And if the answer is no, then I would say probably work on that before you talk about starting a nonprofit. Yes. So I had a call. Someone was like, hey, we have our first fundraiser. And then I called them after the fundraiser and asked how it went. They were like, no one showed up. And I'm just like, not just no one showed up, but no one showed up. We're not going to do it anymore. And so I feel like that shows, okay, how committed are you to the cause? Because one, if you're new, no one actually knows you. So they can't support someone they don't know. Like, it's just really hard (laughs) to be like, sure. I will give you some money. (laughs) And so you have to know that you built that tough skin. You're comfortable with people saying no to your face and be like, oh, cool. I still believe in this cause. I still think it's important. I will call you in a couple weeks when we're doing another event. And just being comfortable with the nose, the door stamp in your face. I've been a telegiver calling people up like, would you like to donate $300 with the sole goal of getting $18? Like, (laughs) oh, I know. That's so terrible. I'm sorry. That's soul sucking. Okay. So I want to remind folks on the call, we'll be taking questions in a minute. So if you have any, throw them in the chat and I'll call on you. Last question for you, Kyla, though, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about COVID. So Adam just asked a a question about cash is queen. I'm curious, what is your advice for budgeting in the time of COVID? Because I think everything is so crazy. We can't count on what has happened to predict what will happen. I mean, I I think our revenue is crazy. And I've seen nonprofits, interestingly, either really being very successful with fundraising, but for the short term, because they've been able to capitalize on PPP and emergency fund money. But we know that the cliff is coming. So I guess my question to you is, how do we think about budgeting and our finances in unpredictable, turbulent times? Yes. So great question. What I would think about is actually the relationships. So because so many organizations are revenue driven, they're basing their budget on how much money is actually going to come in. I would say starting the conversation soon, sooner rather than later with potential funders to say, hey, we're gearing up for next year. We want to be sure we can deliver our services. And before we get ahead of ourselves and start expecting funds we'd love to know if you are able to make a commitment to us is there something that we can count on talk to any previous funders for like grants to see if they're still funding in the same way so what we've seen for some of our clients are funders are saying you know what actually we can't support that summer camp this year because everything's being redirected towards covid relief and those types of things so having those conversations and saying next year do you think you're going to pivot back to supporting our other programs so that you can temper your expectations now and know, okay, we need to operate on a smaller budget. We need to just focus on these two programs instead of seven and really thinking about what are the programs that are mission critical? Like we would never 
if you said, if we didn't do this, we would not exist, those are the programs to focus on first. And really, when you're having any of those conversations saying, this is the one thing we want to know we're going to do next year. And that way, people aren't thinking about having five reasons to fund you. They're thinking, is this the one thing that I support? Yes. Done. Move on. It's going to be starting earlier, focusing on less program, less specific programs so that you can really make that impact and survive through another year. Right. And so do you recommend doing like scenario planning or like three to six month budgets? Because I feel like at this point, a year out is just so unpredictable. Yeah. So I do, I like the idea of doing the scenario planning. So saying like, what if, <laughs> um, that way you have three, I just like to say three options. So I like to do a bare minimum, like this is us on our shoestring. Please do not access to cut any further that option the if all things work perfectly <laughs> option and then that middle ground where you're talking really about okay what are our true priorities if we had the two things that we needed to do these are the new grants that we're expecting so that you have that middle ground scenario and that you can go into the board meeting explaining the differences between them so that people aren't saying well why don't you just cut a little bit more we have to feed our staff, so we can't cut anything else. <laughs> they truly understand that. If you're saying we need to cut one more program, we also are saying we need to let go this staff, we need to do these things, and truly outlining the ramifications right. so that people can say, yes, okay, we will start with worst case, and if things improve, we'll, we'll bump and evaluating that budget because times are so, who knows? I would say just evaluating it quarterly to say, okay, we started with the worst case, three months in, do we feel like we're comfortable enough to go to our middle ground? Because then now you can start using that budget <laughs> to apply for grants and that type of thing. Or are we still saying like, we don't yeah. know, we're just gonna have to play it out. Yeah, I call it the air water chocolate, right? So air is like, if we don't have this, we will suffocate and die yeah. within minutes. Water is like, okay, we'll... We can like stick it out for a couple of days, but like we're going to need it. And chocolate is like, all right, this is like the nice to have. Actually, it's funny in my, my nonprofit, we changed chocolate to, <laughs> this is so silly. We changed it to glitter ponies because I once saw this ridiculous article about Kim Kardashian's engagement party and how she had glitter ponies there. And I was like, well, that just seems ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so now, so we called it glitter pony. Like, is that a glitter pony? <laughs> That is a great way to frame it. Because I would be like, chocolate? No, I think I don't need the chocolate. Yeah, like, yeah, glitter no, pony, but, I might not. I don't think you don't need a glitter I mean, look, you might want to have a glitter pony. Like, sure, glitter ponies are fun. But do you really need a glitter pony? So maybe it's not a wish list. It's, a, it's the glitter pony list. It's a glitter pony list. Can you walk me through, like, the top three biggest mistakes that you see nonprofits make in terms of their finances? So the top three biggest mistakes. One, doing it the way you so-and-so tells you you had to do it without question so it's nice to have a starting point but you have to push back and say like is this even reasonable does it actually pertain to our organization is this something that matters so like you get your accounting system it comes with the default accounts but then no one knows what how to code things because they don't understand what the accounts mean so i'm always a fan of saying like what does this translate to in our organization because you don't want it to be extra work for everyone involved. And if they have to keep think, like looking at the list, be like, what? Okay, supplies. Got it. 
code like 73524 is like supplies, but not summer supplies. That's 73577. Yes. I'm like, really? I'm good. So like really thinking about like, how do we customize it so that everyone who might have to look at it will understand? The other thing that frequently happens is hiring a professional, but not asking them the why questions. Mm, Interesting. So you hire an accountant and one of the things that happened in a conversation this week, talking with an organization and the 990 came up and they said they had never actually looked at the 990. So they had got, they knew they had to file it. So they submitted all their stuff, got it filed, but never read it. And for me, I'm like, well, that feels like a waste of money because (laughs) you've now put this report out into the universe and you, if someone came with the question, you would have no answer because you don't know what was on it. And so that type of thing of saying like, oh, we hired an expert to do a thing. We're going to let them just do their thing and never think about it again. I don't agree with that. You hire an expert, yes, but at some point for your organization, you want to know that one, they understand that the work you do, and two, you agree with the thing they said about you. <laughs> so that is probably my pet peeve, is being like, oh yeah, we, we paid a person to do what? <laughs> yep. So just not taking it for granted that just because they're an expert in you know, working with nonprofits doesn't mean they're an expert in your organization. And so mm. if, if there's anything that's a detail about you, you need to push back and say, why did you say this? Could you explain to me? Oh, we miscommunicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is actually yep. what that should have said. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then it's particularly when it comes to the board and finances, I think the biggest misconception is that they know what they're talking about. So that I is- have such an opinion about that. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> and so really, like you said, just because they have a finance background does not mean they understand nonprofit finances. And assuming that because they said yes to being on the board, because they run their own business, because they do all these other things means that they understand, oh, what's a balance sheet or a statement of financial position. So really taking the time at any board meeting to say, hey, we just want to highlight this one section of the financial statements Mm -hmm. so that you're not asking people, do you have questions? Do you understand? You're making a point, but you're making a point to say, we want to point out this. Because when you bring it up, it allows people to ask more questions because they're like, oh, now that we focus on this one section, I have these other questions. So just really making it more accessible in that way. The power of the cover sheet. I learned about that, which is like (laughs) in plain English, put a cover sheet on to highlight any big changes. Because if you don't and they find out, then like they're going to think that you either like didn't know or are trying to hide something. And instead, it's better to just, like, explain it on the front end. (laughs) I have a question coming in from Lena. Lena, go ahead. Hi. Thank you. Basically, my question, (laughs) I didn't know exactly how to phrase it, but we've all been doing so much contingency planning in this crazy period. Um, And I'm just looking ahead to next year. You talked about triggers a little bit. I'm just, I guess I'm trying to figure out how many contingencies need to be built in. How formal do those triggers need to be? If cash gets below this amount, we'll sort of revise the budget. Or if students are enrolling at below this level, then we'll um, revise the budget. So those can be sort of formal to me, right? Like I should know what those things are, but how publicly to share that with the board, with the staff, um, sort of what we're imagining those triggers will be throughout the year. Great question. So 
for the scenarios, I wouldn't pick more than three, just because that becomes too many spreadsheets to remember to update and look for. So thinking, okay, what are the three, and to that point being, what are the three triggers that would make us activate any one of these budgets? For how public should it be, I would think of who will it be affected the most. So if you are talking about if we don't hit these enrollment numbers, we are going to need to lay off staff. Having that conversation with staff to let them know, hey, we're tracking enrollment. These are the points that we need to be at so that you could know, hey, this is when staff might need to be putting out their resume. I was on a call this week just about that, um, where they said we have eight months of reserves. And someone asked, like, well, could we know in three months when you don't have like when there's only three months left so that we know if we should start looking for a new job. And because they were that open with it, I think it put the staff at ease that the organization is looking for their best interest. We wanna keep all of you, but we also know you have to do what's best for your family. So from the staff perspective, just thinking for them high level, what are gonna be the things that you would need to start laying staff off because of? So they don't need to know like, oh, we have seven students today, we will not make it, but hey, Monthly, we'll talk about it. When we hit the three-month mark, we'll have that conversation. In terms of what should the board know, I again would let the board know about the things that would affect staffing changes, because if they, if part of their review is looking at staffing, especially salaries and benefits, that would be something that I'd be like, hey, heads up, this is one of the things that we're looking at. And the details, I would... If you have a subcommittee or something, maybe going over the details of it. So if you're saying like, okay, staffing would be triggered by this, maybe if that, if you have a person now, if you're one of those that has like, we have seven subcommittees, yes, <laughs> let the subcommittees do their job. But really thinking to the board, hey, these are the top three. We're looking at staffing. Maybe we're looking at when is our city, our state opening up? Will that be one of the effects that we need to add as a trigger? And then maybe the the third being something that's more closely related to a specific funder. So if you know like a specific funder usually will release, open up their grants in the spring and you just don't know yet if they're changing their mind, letting that be a trigger of like, once we hear the new requirements, considering all the changes that they've made, this will affect how we move forward. Did that answer your question, Lena? Yes, thank you. Okay, cool. Last thoughts, Kyla, as we are signing off here, anything that we haven't covered that you think folks should know? I would say we should all realize that we are, especially in the age of COVID, we're all going through this together. Like we've hear it time and time again, but the understanding that just like you are hearing, oh, this new thing just happened, <laughs> everyone is hearing it with you. So giving ourselves grace to say like, oh, I didn't know that a month ago, it's fine will move forward because that typically becomes the cycle that I see people dig into like, how could I not have known that? Well, with the overload of everything, there's just not enough hours <laughs> mm -hmm. to do that and be reasonable. So really think of like, what would be the point where you're like, hey, I wanna reach out to my accountant to see like, hey, do you have any updates? Because I get like 75 emails a day about like this random thing and I'm like, can someone give me an abridged version? Could you just give me the highlights at the end of the month that will tell me what I missed? Um, so really reaching out to any providers to say, okay, 
I know you are overwhelmed with the number of emails. Is there a way for us to have a quick call about what should I be paying attention to so that you stay focused on your work and you aren't constantly thinking like, okay, what's the new issue? What's the new thing that I have to pay attention? Yeah, that's such a good point. And one last thing that I'll offer up to is my CFO once said this to me. He, he said, money should not be a mood alterer. Cause I think I was like bummed out about, you know, a grant that we didn't get or something. And he was like, it neither, it should neither be like a thing that dictates whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood. It's just money. And yep. by taking the emotion out of it, I think it helped me to just be much more clear about making strategic decisions. I love that. All right, friends, this has been fun, Kyla. Thank you so much for your time. I will make sure to post all the information that you have in the links on the podcast and Thank you so much. Good luck with everything. All right. You too. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.